Thank you very much, Kevin, and uh, thank you, worship team. I hope you've enjoyed being here this morning already. I certainly have uh, already been filled, so thank you, worship team and Carla for sharing, and Greg for your part as well. Um, one of the unique things about Grace Point, you picked it up this morning, and if you've been around, you know it, that we like to talk about our vision as being a transforming presence in the town square by being relentless in pursuit of the social, spiritual, and cultural good. If it sounds like I've said that before, it's possible I have, but that means something to us here, that we want to be connecting people to people, people to God, and people to the systems that work for them in our community. And so it's awesome to see what's happening with Carla and the factory and PV and CAP, and awesome to hear about all those kind of things that are going on. So if you found yourself at GPC or you're listening online wondering what kind of church is this, it's a church that has that kind of focus, and we're grateful to be a part of it uh, with you. Well, that kind of focus requires a special kind of um, view of how leadership is done. And one of the things that you know, and, and I know too, that you, through the course of your life, have encountered people who have different leadership styles. If I were to ask you to turn to your neighbor and talk about your last boss who didn't work out, or your, maybe your former in-laws, and maybe you're no longer in a relationship there, you may have something to say about how leadership was handled and power was handled. And this morning I want to talk to you about leadership and power, but I don't want to do it just on my own, but I want to take you to what Jesus did when he walked the planet in in, um, a moment that is a story that we're ultimately all going to be familiar with, I believe, but maybe we're going to see from a different angle. But but to get there, to get to this idea of leadership and power, I want to share a brief story that uh, Max Dupree, he was the former CEO of Herman Miller, he told this story, and I, I love the, the simplicity and synthesis of it. He said this, he said, I arrived at the local tennis club just after the high school students had vacated the locker room. Like chickens, they had not bothered to pick up after themselves. And all the parents in the room were like, we know what you mean. Without thinking too much about it, I gathered up all their towels and put them in the hamper. And a friend of mine quietly watched me do this and then asked me a question that I've pondered many times over the years. Do you pick up towels because you're the president of the company? Or are you the president because you pick up the towels? To which Max Dupree said this, he said, picking up the towels qualifies me to accept leadership. What are my leadership qualifications? I'm the guy who picks up the towels. This is a view of servant leadership that if you've been around in the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you've seen actually a growth in leadership theory around the idea of servant leadership. Servant leadership, I saw in action um, a local high school sports team uh, just a couple years ago it was a beautiful example of this. The, the guys' team and the girls' team was sharing the field at the same time, the practice facility, and they were walking off the field together, and the senior girls on the, the team were carrying the equipment and the water, while the freshman girls were just following behind. Meanwhile, the senior guys are letting the freshman guys carry the water and equipment, and the senior guys are making fun of the senior girls and saying, guys, don't you know that's what freshmen are for? To which the girls are saying, don't you know that's what leaders are for? And then mic drop and they walked off the, <laughs> the, the stage. Because servant leadership is the kind of leadership that you intrinsically respect and honor and just want to be a part of. You want to be a part of companies and businesses and families and neighborhoods and sports teams and musicals. You want to be a part of groups in which the person who's kind of in charge of the whole thing has this attitude of what qualifies me is because I pick up the towels. This isn't what freshmen are for, this is what leaders are for, is to do this. But this didn't just happen. Servant leadership didn't just happen. 
There was many a year where servant leadership, it's so oxymoronic. There are no servant leaders, if you think about it. What does that even mean? You're either a leader or you're a servant, but you're not really both. A servant is in charge. They can't lead, or can they? And I'd like to argue with you that this morning that when Jesus walked the planet, he was the one who actually introduced this idea and set kind of a kernel of truth in the ground and said, let me water this a little bit. And I know it's a big idea, so I'm going to put it in the ground. I'm going to water it and let it grow, kind of let you explore and understand what it looks like to be people who see what servant leadership becomes when it comes and grows. Now, the way that he did this is a little bit different. And, and he tells us, John, um, who is a close follower of Jesus, tells a story about one of Jesus' miracles. And in this series called Jesus we've been in, We've been trying to make the case that there's a time when no one had any expectations around Jesus. They didn't know who he was. And that John introduces Jesus by signs and statements. And in this fourth sign that Jesus does, Jesus does something that you, even if you haven't been in church for a long time, you probably already know about. And here, by the way, here is a picture that's a similar picture to what I would have experienced growing up as a kid in church. Um, And you may have experienced this if you grew up in church as well, but this picture here. Isn't this beautiful? This is... This is a church 20, 30 years ago for me. So it's the story of what we call the feeding of the five. Isn't that amazing? People like to do that. If you didn't know that, that's totally fine. We're going to tell you that story here briefly. But here's, here's that amazing picture, a very church-centric picture. Calm Jesus wearing a clean, well-pressed white robe. No, that's him because the others don't wear that. And then, you know, he has the red thing over top. And look how calm and happy all the people are eating their bread and their fish. And I'm sure it was that bucolic and, you know, peaceful and just a wonderful moment. And what I was taught about the feeding of the 5,000 is, hey, here's a great story. You know, just um, Jesus shows up. He appears. He, he has this kid who has five loaves and two fish, right? And then he just, you know, woo magic, oh, abracadabra, a la peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, whatever it is. And boom, now all of a sudden we have enough food for everybody. And then, you know, the curtain closes on the event and, you know, we move on. Like, that's cool. So what's the, what's the point? Well, I guess the point is, I don't know, maybe the point is God provides. Sure, that's a, that's a point. Maybe, maybe the point is Jesus provides. Well, maybe that's true. And maybe that is true. And I think that's partially true. But then I have to ask the question as an adult now, not as a kid anymore, with adult questions of adult stories. Well, if that's true, that the story is that God provides and Jesus provides, why doesn't he always provide rent money when I need it? Why doesn't he always provide the food that we need at the end of the month anyway? And why doesn't he provide me with someone who I can spend the rest of my life with? If Jesus provides and he can do something like that, if that's the point you're trying to tell me, then why aren't I part of the 5,000 when I need him to be? And it's an interesting thing. The other part of this story that's interesting is this is one of only two miracles that are recorded in all four what we call gospels. See, there was people who wrote about Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all followed him. And in different ways, and they wrote stories about Jesus. And only two stories are recorded, only two miracles, excuse me, are recorded in all four of their Gospels. They're different accounts. One is the resurrection, which seems kind of important, right? And the other one is this one. Like, this is funny. Like, of all the, man, of all the miracles to record, like, why this one? If I'm honest with you, the whole Lazarus story, that's even more impressive than this, right? I mean, Lazarus, he was dead, right? Like, he, he was dead, and now he's alive. This is cool, bread and fish into thousands, that's a cool trick, but the dead to alive, that's even bigger. So why wouldn't you include that in all four? I mean, why, why is this one included in all four of the Gospels? You know, is it just because, well, we really want everyone to know God provides? That's the point of the story. 
And so as I explore this story and kind of put on my adult lens onto the story and get this picture of what I'm used to seeing, kind of set that to the backdrop for a minute and re-engage this account, now as an adult with my adult questions on the text and on the story, I want to encourage you to see it with me in maybe a fresh way, in maybe a way that can help you see maybe what Jesus was really trying to do, maybe the picture that he was really trying to create. And so I invite you to, to bring your mind with me on this journey back in time. If you have a Bible, I invite you also to turn to John chapter 6. If you don't own a Bible, there's no problem. There's a Bible in the pew near you. You can also flip it on your device and um, check out John chapter 6. John is the fourth book in the, what we call the New Testament, so it's in the right two-thirds of your Bible. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And John 6 is where we're going to land to begin the story going from verses 1 to 15. I'm going to kind of go in and out of the story as I typically do, reading some and then commenting some. And I invite you to kind of see it with fresh eyes again, and I'll try to do my part to help you see it that way, and, um, and we'll see what Jesus, I think, is maybe really trying to do. So, sometime, verse 1 of chapter 6, sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And so what we know from the other gospel accounts and the other authors who wrote about this is that, that Jesus... Um, went around to kind of the, the distant side of the lake, and people who were around Jesus, the people who were following him, they were interested in continuing to follow him, and they knew where he was going, and so they walked around. And so we kind of fast forward time as hundreds and then ultimately thousands of people are walking along the shores and gathering through the villages as the word spread that Jesus was going to the far shore. And verse 2, a great crowd of people followed him because... They are gold diggers. <laughs> I mean, that's what it says, basically, because, because, not because they believed that he was the Messiah, not because that they believed that he was the Savior of the world, not because they even believed that he was the prophet who was to come. I mean, the reason, here's the because, as John says, because they saw, they just, with their eyes, they saw the signs that he had performed by healing the sick. And maybe I'm sick. And maybe I don't have rent money, and maybe I'm hungry, but I don't know. This guy seemed to do something pretty incredible. So because he has done that there, maybe he can do something amazing for me. That's why they, that's why they follow him. And I, frankly, I don't blame them. I would probably do the very same thing. Verse 3, Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. Now, You've got to picture this again. We're going to a far side, the distant side of the lake, a little bit of a remote area, and hundreds, we learn later, thousands of people are walking toward Jesus. Do you think he knew what would happen? Of course he did. I think Jesus is drawing people out to one of the most remote portions of the area at the time, ultimately to make the case that he is going to be making. And he sits down on the mountainside so that everyone can see and hear what is about to happen. And then John includes this really important detail next in verse 4. As all these people are gathered around here, it's not just that they show up on a picture or flannel graph, as I was introduced to them back in the day in my little Sunday school room in Barbados where I grew up, but that the Jewish, verse 4, the Jewish Passover festival was near. Very important to think about these people, their expectation around this time. If you can imagine the anticipation around Christmas time or Thanksgiving, or I don't know what you are, if you're someone who likes the anticipation of pumpkin spice latte, whatever the fall brings at latte love, you know, that kind of thing. You like that pumpkin, whatever that anticipation is of something's coming. 
This is the Passover festival. It's this, this anticipation of looking forward to this season will be a time of both refreshment and renewal and time with my family, but it is also time. It is a major motif in the Old Testament. It's a period of time when people look to God again and say, God was the one who provided, he was the one who provided a sacrificial lamb when we were all destined to die. If God doesn't provide here, we are going to die. Like it, it, it creates this space where the entire community stops and remembers the provision of God as a sacrificial lamb, just the way that works. So this is all kind of coming on in the background of their mind. The Jewish Passover festival was near. That was in their growing anticipation. I'm sure they talked about who was serving what as they walked along to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, who they're going to see again, how old the kids have grown, all this kind of stuff that happens as people engage with people. So verse 5, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, which I would argue is no surprise, he knew this was happening, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now let me ask you, have you ever been called on in class and not had the answer? I had a class in seminary just like that. It was the most stressful, intense time of my seminary years. I think I can still remember it, that we would be called out by name uh, every class period to recount some things in our reading that was sometimes, you know, dozens or hundreds of pages long, and they would just call it out in the class. So 75, they'd call out your name. All right, Mr. Rogers, can you please tell us why these th three things are true about some ancient church history person? I'm like, I have... <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> you know, uh, you have to do whatever to get out of the room. And this is kind of what Philip is doing. Like, uh, what? I wasn't quite paying attention to Jesus. Can you repeat that? Because it seems like you asked me where we're going to buy bread in the middle of nowhere for everybody to eat. And I wasn't quite paying attention during that class, but I have no idea. And so, so here's what he says. Well, I'm sorry, here's what is going on in Jesus' mind in verse 6. He asks this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he's going to do. It's kind of not nice, Jesus, okay? Verse 7, Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Now, I think Philip's right. In the other Gospels, the other people who write about this, they say it would take eight months' wages. So I don't know what that is, but if you can imagine, if any of you ever planned a wedding and you have to pay for the catering for 200 people, like that bill gets up there. Now just imagine 5,000. I don't know, I think it's higher than that, right? So I don't know. I, right now, I mean, what Philip is basically saying is, Jesus, it can't be done. That's his polite way of saying, I can't really tell you it can't be done because you're Jesus and all, but it can't be done. Like it's going to take 50 grand to pay for this right now. I don't have it. We're in the middle of nowhere. There's no ATMs around. We can't pull it off. It can't be done. Now, it's interesting, and I think these two points are very true. Pause for a minute here. I think what Jesus is doing in verse 5 and 6 are very important for us to process. One of my um, both friends and professors at now seminary said it this way about what Jesus asked Philip to do. He said he looked at the crowd, and, and he said to Philip, and Jesus doesn't do this by mistake, he invites his disciples to confront the problem that is bigger than them. He doesn't just solve it. He says to them, okay, you look at it. By the way, it's a great leadership principle. Many of you do that in your business. You have someone who comes to you, maybe you're the supervisor, looking for answers from you, and you can ask them, what would you do? How would you solve this? And they already know many of the answers. They're just not sure what to do with it. And 
It's a great leadership principle. Jesus does the same thing, but my professor, Bill Lawrence, said it this way. He said, Jesus is always going to ask you to do what you cannot do with what you do not have for the rest of your life. That was a very insightful way to say that. Yeah, he's right. Jesus is always going to ask you to do what you can't do with the things that you don't have for the rest of your life. And then he goes on, and Philip's response is, excuse me, yeah, Philip's response in verse 7 is this. He's saying it would take more than half a year's wages. So what Philip is doing is he's taking, he's looking out there at the ministry that needs to be done. He said, we don't have the money or the resources to pull it off. Now, one of the things at GPC, we get a core value from this very verse right here. One of our core values is this, that ministry comes before the money because of this story right here and others. But primarily, in in many ways, because of this. In other words, as soon as you put money in front of the ministry and say, we can't do whatever because we don't have the money, that's exactly what Philip is saying here. Jesus, if I had 50K, I would make it happen. I don't have it. I don't have the money required to do the ministry, and so therefore, it's not going to get done. To which Jesus is like, oh, you're right. Like, I should have thought about that. I had no idea it cost that much money. Of course he doesn't do that. The ministry must come before the money. That's just the way that it has to work. And so, this is funny, verse 8. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Have you ever spoken up before you thought up? (laughs) Have you ever spoken up before you really thought, like, oh, I had a thought, it was inside, it probably should have stayed inside. Because here's what Andrew says. Hey, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. And then I think he realizes how stupid this is. I mean, forget that you know what's going to happen for a minute. This is idiotic. Like, it's like, hey, the house is on fire, but I have a squirt gun. I mean, I think we're good to go. Like, that's essentially what's happening here. The problem is massive, but I got a kid. He's got five small fish and, five, and two small loaves. You think that can... They can't even do anything. So then I think he recognizes the foolishness of his statement, and he says, uh, but how far will that go among so many? But it leads directly into, you know the story, what Jesus does, verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. And there was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there, not including women and children, so we're looking potentially 10,000 or more. We're not quite sure how that all plays out. Verse 11 Jesus then took the loaves and gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. I don't know how the distribution works, but I want you to think about the implications of this, about how quickly or slowly this would happen. Can you imagine the gradual impact of this? Have you ever been standing in a line for food, maybe here or other places at a buffet, whatever? It does not move quickly, especially when you are hungry. Feeding five to 10,000 people, kind of ad hoc or whatever, you know, make it up on the side of a mountain, that is not a five-minute operation. So the gradual delivery of this miracle to these people is something to consider. That not only are they, see, Philip's initial response is it would take eight months' wages for them even to get a bite. If you want to feed them a full meal, it's going to take several years' worth of money to actually feed, feed everybody for real. And now the feeding of everybody, as it gradually unfolds, I think what happens is you see verse 12, when they all had enough to eat, 
when they all had, had enough, when they all finally got fed, it just slowly kind of trickles through the crowd of like, this is happening. Where did they get this from? We're in the middle of nowhere, on a mountainside. How did we get it here? And the story begins to unfold. Of, there was a kid. He had five loaves, two fish. Who knows how the story unfolds? And people begin to gradually not just see the miracle, but taste the miracle. And then he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over and let nothing be wasted. Now, why does he say that? Why, what's he afraid of losing the bread? Like, does he need to keep it for tomorrow? Like, I'm pretty sure he can come up with bread wherever you know, he needs to, right? Let nothing be wasted. I think his point is, I want you to see, I want you to count, I want you to observe that not only can I provide for your needs, but I have plenty of extra. Plenty of extra. Just in case you ever thought that this couldn't be done. And so all, they gather them up, verse 13, they fill them with 12 baskets full of the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. And if we stop the story here, it is a really good story. It's a great story to tell the kids. It's a good story to tell to adults. Adults have more questions about it. But it's a good story. It's a good story with a happy ending and kind of picturesque as whatever the artist was up there that drew that picture for us. And it's a good story. But I think there's more to it. And I think the reason that it is included in all four Gospels is not because it's the most powerful miracle that Jesus did. Because again, I think Lazarus was even more powerful but because it says something about the kind of world that Jesus wants to create. I think it says something about the kind of kingdom that Jesus has come to bring. I think it says something about the kind of king, ruler, and leader that he wants to be. Look at verse 14. This is where we begin to see a turn. After the people saw the sign that Jesus had performed, they began to say, Surely, you can see the confidence in them now. They weren't sure earlier, but now they are. Surely, this is the prophet who has come into the world. What do you do if you encounter the prophet who has come into the world? What do you want to do if you're sitting in that crowd and you already halfway believed, you came because you were kind of a gold digger, like Jesus did some cool things earlier, now you're here and now you have eaten of the work of his hands. Do you not want, and would I not want him to keep doing this over and over and over again? Like, would I not want him to be the captain of my team? Would I not want him to be the president of my company? Would I not want him to be the governor of the land? And would I not want him to be the king of the country? Sure. And look at what happens next, verse 15. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king, by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. There was one author, one writer, who put it this way. He said this, that much of the irony in the passage in John is that he who is already king, Jesus, has come to open his kingdom to men. But in their blindness, men try to force him to be the kind of king they want. Thus they fail to get the king they want and also lose the kingdom that he offers. I think the point is very true. That God 
through Christ here demonstrates a kind of leadership that says, if you want me to be king by force, I'm out. It reminds me early of George Washington. You know his story, that he was the one who vacated leadership of our presidency in the early forming of our country so that there wouldn't be a president who could be like a king who could rule forever and ever and ever. And he intentionally stepped back, even though he was invited to continue to lead. Jesus, seeing that they intend to make him king by force, says, wait, you've seen what a good king can do, but now you default back to your only version of power that you know You want to make me king by force. You want to overthrow that which is with me. You want to bring on top of the power that is. And that is not how the kingdom of God works. The other gospel accounts, when they write about this story, they say from the beginning that Jesus, when he looked at the crowds, he had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about the compassion of Jesus, seeing it. And here is the work of a servant leader saying... I see your need. Let me, out of my compassion, give to you the very basics of what you need. And the servant leader, what Jesus models here, I think is exactly what this point of this entire miracle is, that you can see and that I can see. What in the world does it look like to have Jesus come as king, to have Jesus come as the ruler and, and see and taste what his kingdom looks like. That his kingdom will be a kingdom that is built on servant leadership first. That his kingdom is one where you look around at the, the community, the world around you, at the people who work with you, at the people on your team, the people that you engage, and you can say, whoa, with compassion, what are your needs? Those needs are bigger than I can meet. I don't have the money to meet those needs, but I must meet them because this is the nature of the kingdom of God, that Jesus in his kindness fed everyone according to their need in that space with much left over. And that is the servant leadership of God. That is the feel of the kingdom of God. That is why I think it's included in all four Gospels, because if you want to know what a world would be like if Jesus were fully in control without any involvement at all, without any of the spiritual warfare that we have going on, if you want to know what that looks like, here is a window into what the kingdom of God looks like. Jesus' compassion unfettered, serving the least of these, without the desire that my goodness to you will be a favor that you will return to me later. As we engage some of these folks who um, serve our state so well, for example, we've had the opportunity to engage with congressmen and other legislators through the work of the Together Initiative Network. Here's one thing that I learned, that, that many of our political leaders cannot receive any gifts from us, even if it's a bottle of water when they come to some of these meetings. The reason is, it can be seen as leverage for a future favor. That if you come in and I give you a nice bottle of water, or I come invite you to a meal of mine, that I would just expect a later on little side wink and nod. Remember, come on, man, we did that $100 meal together. Remember that? Come on, I mean, I need you to push something through for me. But what if there's no future favor? What if the leader just simply provides a a gift because of his compassion. And that's what Jesus does. He says, I'm going to give to you that which you need. You're hungry. We don't have time, resources to go by, whatever. I'm just going to give to you what you need. You want to make me king? No. I didn't come to have myself come over top like that. Believe it or not, in the last, um, probably the last 20 years, 
Servant leadership as a theory of a business practice has really grown. What I want you to know is that what we read in the account of Jesus is not just pie-in-the-sky religious thinking. This isn't just, hey, come to church and hear some good things about what Jesus does, and that's great for, for then, but, but not for now. We live in a dog-eat-dog world. We live in a world where you've got to be tough and rough to be a good leader. Like, hmm, I'm not so sure. In 2004, there was empirical evidence-based research done on servant leadership as a model. And one of the things that research tells us about servant leadership as a model is that servant leadership actually does this with your employees. It creates higher levels of creativity with employees. It creates a... Um, an employee environment where employees feel like they're treated fairly. It creates a space where there is service in your organization. These are empirically based research work that has been done. And here's what um, this one fellow defines servant leadership as, Robert Greenleaf. He said, the servant leader is the servant first. It begins with a natural feeling that one wants to serve, to serve first. This idea that I'm not serving you for a future favor, but you're here in my space, and I want to carry the water for you. I want to carry the equipment for you. I'm going to clean up the towels because they need to be cleaned up, not because later on you will do something for me, but this servant first, this natural feel of that. That's just part of what it is. Now, Jesus... (laughs) Jesus had this problem when he was walking the planet too, this, this kind of interaction between two different worlds of power. There was a time when um, two of the moms of the disciples, this is such a funny story, two moms come and moms can be moms sometimes and dads can be dads, but sometimes moms can kind of overreach. We've heard of helicopter parenting now, right? And I think this is ancient helicopter parenting where the two moms come to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus. Just do me a favor, you know, when you're in your glory and all that stuff happens in your glory, can one of my sons sit on the right and maybe the other one sit on the left? Can we make that happen? Do you mind if we kind of pull the strings of that right now? To which Jesus and the other disciples hear about it and they get pretty angry. And here's what they say. When the ten, the other disciples, heard about that, they were indignant with the two brothers. And Jesus called them together and said, we got to meet. Like, we got, you guys are upset with each other, we got to meet. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it, look, our first word, lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. This is what you know. You know of leadership like this. This is what you are used to. This is the power structures that you are used to. People take power and they put it over you. I mean, that's just what we think power is. When you're in charge, you're on the top of the totem pole. You're on the top rung of the ladder. You're the top of the company. You're on the top. That authority comes from top down. You're used to that. That's what Jesus is saying. And then he says this, not so with you. Not so with you. He goes on, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is what I think the point of the 5,000 is. This is the way the kingdom of God should feel. If you have encountered Jesus, if you've encountered Jesus and you've encountered any kind of power or authority structure that has been different than this, that has been a power or authority that has come on top of a heavy weight that has put something on you, you've experienced something, but you haven't experienced the kingdom of God as Jesus has designed it to be. Because when he comes, he feeds everybody without expectation that they're going to do something for them in the future. You know, two researchers from the University of Illinois 
wrote about transformational leadership versus servant leadership in 2017, just two years ago. Here's what they had to say about this. They said, whereas transformational leaders are seen as putting their organization's needs first and encouraging employees to sacrifice their own interests to meet the goals of the organization, does that sound familiar? Servant leaders prioritize the needs of followers. This is so backwards. Transformational leadership says the organization is important. We must meet the needs of the organization and employees sacrifice to make that happen. That is the way the world works. Servant leadership, this is 2017 University of Illinois research. Servant leaders prioritize the needs of the followers. Who does that? Who does that? Someone like Cheryl Backelder does that. She's the CEO of Popeyes, turned that organization around, wrote a book called Dare to Serve. She's a believer out of Atlanta. If you ever read that book, she's built her entire leadership model on this concept of servant leadership. Where does she get it? She doesn't get it just from space or outer space. She gets it from Jesus. Jesus introduced to the world this idea that servant leadership is the way that people who follow Jesus should indeed lead their companies, lead their families, lead their spouses, lead their sports teams, lead their classmates, and serve with one another. It's an amazing, amazing principle. So last thing I want to say, two last things, three last, how many last things can I get? <clears throat> last slide before the last slide, the preview to the last slide, here we go. There are, um, Regent University pulled together about um, 12 different people who wrote on the topic of servant leadership, and they identified 12 different characteristics of servant leadership. So here's what they said. This is servant leadership currently, in its current evidence-based form is identifying if you are thinking about what in the world does it actually mean for me to be a servant leader? Okay, because I think all of us are like, that's a great idea. Uh, someone should do that, and maybe I do it. Do I do it well enough? I don't know. You know, what does that actually mean? These 12 characteristics are identified now as evidence-based characteristics for people who are leading servant leadership-based organizations. Based on, when you look at this, it's like, seriously? Like, is, doesn't this seem like, I don't know, Christian? Doesn't this seem like, I don't know, valuing people, humility, listening, trust, caring, integrity, service, empowering, serving others first, collaboration, unconditional love and learning? Doesn't that seem like it might be even Sermon on the Mount stuff? Doesn't that even seem like, like Jesus might have something to say about all that? Doesn't that even seem like it comes from the heart of a Christian? And so my question, <laughs> my question for you is going to be around the kind of world that you would love to see. Because I think when Jesus feeds the 5,000, it's a picture of the kind of world that his leadership creates. It gives a feel, a picture of this is what it looks like to be under the, the benevolent rule of God. And so my question is this. What kind of world am I creating for the people around me? What kind of world are you creating for the people around you, for the people who live under your roof, the people who you go to school with, the people that you work with, the people you work for, the people that you wish you could date or are dating, people who may be in your future. What kind of world are you creating for them? Valuing people, humility, thinking of others first. This idea of servant leadership. The story of the feeding of the 5,000 is indeed an incredible fish story, but it's more than that. It's more than just Jesus provides, although he does. It's more than just ministry comes before the money, although it's that too. It's Jesus is going to ask you to do what you can't do, what you do not have for the rest of your life. It's that, but it's more. And what I think is the more is that in all four Gospels, this story is told because it's a beautiful picture 
of what servant leadership does for everyone in our communities. It comes underneath, using your power, using your strength to serve those around you. So what kind of world am I creating for the people around me? That, that is why Jesus fed the 5,000. And that is what I want to encourage you to ask, to consider. And again, I will say, if you have experienced Jesus, but haven't experienced the servant leadership of Jesus, but have experienced the weight, you've felt something that you haven't experienced, the Messiah, the King, who's come, first of all, to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's the fourth sign. Next week, the fifth sign. That is when the disciples get in trouble and we have trouble at sea. I'm looking forward to that conversation with you. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the time to be together this morning and re-engage a story that many of us have heard, even if we haven't been in church before. I pray that you would help us to consider, again, the impact of Christ's servant leadership, that each of us, if we call ourselves a follower of Jesus as a disciple of his, have been asked in a way to look out and see the masses around us. And as Jesus engages Philip and says, go feed them. He says the same to us as disciples now, go feed them. Go feed your family. Go feed your employees. Go feed your coworkers. Go feed your people in your school. Go feed them. And the way to do it is the servant leadership piece first. Loving others unconditionally. Humility, caring, integrity, honesty and not only does it work corporately not only is it evidence-based in that way but it works because of who Jesus is and what he has shown us and so I pray that you would give us the courage to inventory again our habits as leaders especially if we're followers of Jesus that everyone who touches us would get a sense that this is the world as Jesus meant for it to be a kindness, a caring, a protection, a service that you can experience in the kingdom of God. We thank you for this example. We pray that you would give us the courage to serve. In Jesus' name we pray.